Thanks for being with us today. Uh, my name is Pastor Dave. I'm glad you'd take a risk to be with us. Some of you are our guests and first timers. Thank you for taking a risk being in a, a church with a bunch of Christians and with a God talker opening up a Bible. I know for some people that takes quite a step of faith to, to come to a church building and be in a service like this. Uh, so thank you. Uh, we're honored to have you with us as we look to Jesus. We've been going through the story of hope, the great story of God's gracious relationship with his people. His covenant is the big Bible word from Adam, our first parent, through uh, Noah and Abraham and now Moses. And we saw how the Lord has been gracious with people who are sinners, with people who fail. And every single person we've considered so far in this biblical story has failed and has been a sinner, except for one, the one that we celebrate who came to save us at Christmas time. And so uh, we, we come again now to the story of Moses. And we're in Exodus 19. And many of us, as we read the book of Moses, if you've ever taken a risk and you've read through the Bible, you've, you've had the difficulty of going through the description of, of the temple and going then through Leviticus and all the description of the sacrifices and numbers. And uh, there are a lot of numbers at the beginning of numbers, hence its name. And it's very difficult to read through at times. And also, sometimes we experience in our reading of, of, of the Bible particularly if we take uh, some things out of their context or, or if we just don't have a context for understanding things that we find there, we might think, is this the same God as what we saw before? Is this that gracious God? And particularly people who maybe only know a little bit about Jesus, you'll, you'll commonly hear in our culture that Jesus and the Jesus of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. This is a common belief. And oftentimes it might come from reading the law, some of the things we're going to be considering today. Well, as we think about this, uh, I want us to just have in mind uh, Galatians chapter 4. And I'm going to read from that and then pray, and then we'll, we'll launch into our time together. But in Galatians 4, it says this, When the full, fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we'll let that frame our thinking about the law and Moses today as we dive in and continue in this story of hope. But let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you would call out to us when we're running away. Thank you that there's nowhere we could run, that we could hide from you. There's nowhere we could flee from your presence. You are determined to chase down your own. Your grace is strong, and we thank you for this. Please meet us, speak to us today. Help us to drop defenses to your word. If there is a part of our hearts and our lives that we want to shield, that we don't want to have addressed, help us to let go and let you do your work in us. Help, help us to receive the word that you would have for us. By your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was adopted. So I don't know how many of you have that experience, but I was two weeks old, so I don't, I don't remember it. My parents came and got me from a hospital in Oklahoma City and brought me home. 
and I was theirs. Within about a year of uh, my life, we were uh, moving to Northwest Missouri, just outside of St. Joseph, to Hoffelmeyer Hill, across the road from my grandma. And so I lived there on that hill that bore my name, and I had a name, Hoffelmeyer, that's my name, because I was adopted. And my parents loved me, so I have a good story. They, imperfect parents like us all, uh, who have that opportunity and privilege, but good parents who sought to love me. And so, like good parents, whenever I did things that were wrong, and I did, and all of you did too, right? And I still do. But whenever I did things that were wrong, um, mom and dad would rightly call me out on it. And they would try to correct me and help me grow and help me become more like what we knew we should be as Hoffelmeyers. There was something that, that that name meant for me. I belonged to that house, and so I should act like it. And so I remember this one time, though, when I was in trouble. I don't remember what it was, but I knew I was going to get it. And so I ran from mom and dad, and I hide under my bed. And I'm there in my room, and mom and dad are calling out to me, David! And you know how it goes. You get in more trouble if you hide. But... But go with me for a moment to a little boy under a bed, hiding from his parents. What was it? I, I even think about myself, what was it? Was it just the fear of getting caught? Was it a sort of shame? Like maybe, maybe they won't love me. Maybe I'll, it'll never be the same again. Maybe, maybe he'll withhold his affection from me thinking of my father. Maybe it'll be different now. Of course, that wasn't the case. But many of us, uh, even those of us who have really experienced adoption, have experienced this. Children who are adopted often bring an orphan mentality into a family where we'll feel, on one hand, that we need to earn the love of our parents. We need to earn our place, particularly if there's biological children alongside. We might feel that we need to earn our place so that we can be just as loved as them, just as, part, as much a part of the family as them. And so we might be nervous to be perfect as much as we can be. And whenever we fail, we want to hide. We feel like it's the end. On the flip side, though, of the coin, there can be this, this deeply hurt and bitterness toward family that can happen among children who are adopted, who've been orphaned. They can feel like, I'm not going to risk love. I'm not going to risk putting out my heart so it could be broken again. And so instead of doing that, they don't seek the approval of the parents. They actually try to work it so that the parents and the other siblings have to seek their approval. And the family system has to work around them and give them what they want. And so this becomes a pretty dysfunctional situation the child demanding everyone around them to gain their approval. This sort of orphan mentality can play into our relationship with God, and that's something that we see throughout the scriptures. God calling a people to himself and them trying to figure out how to live with him. Do we seek his approval? Or do we demand from him that he give us what we want? How do we live with this God? Well, we see from the beginning, God is a gracious God who brings a people to himself apart from what they deserve. We saw it with Adam and Noah and Abraham. 
But with Moses, sometimes we think that the story flips, that suddenly God changes, and now he demands his people to measure up before he will offer his love. And people will misread from the law this section of scripture to come to that conclusion. But it, you can understand how they could reach that conclusion. There's, a, there's an author named Dan Kimball. He's not the first one to say it, but he wrote a book called How Not to Read the Bible. It's a pretty good book. And one of the chapters is called Never Read a Bible Verse. Never read a Bible verse. You hear what he's saying? You take one verse and you can ride that thing long and hard until you are starting to say something with it that it doesn't say at all, right? That's what we do when we take a verse out of context. And sometimes we do that with Exodus 19, 5, which we heard today. Now, therefore, if, hear the word if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples, if. And so we start to think as we read a verse like that, we think that our relationship with God is iffy. This orphan mentality comes to us with God and we think that I have to measure up with him. Or maybe we just think, I'm not even going to risk it. Why should I seek his approval at all? But what is that if actually doing there? Let's look at it, even just look one verse before. And remember that the same God who redeemed Adam and Noah and gave great promise through Abraham is the same God right now who is showing up at Mount Sinai in this story that we're reading. He says in verse 4 of, of Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, these were a people who were in slavery. Just as God had promised to Abraham, he gave him that realistic promise in Genesis 15 we talked about last week, that Abraham would have an offspring, but they would eventually be in slavery for 430 years, but then the Lord would bring them home to a land he has promised. And here the Lord has met this people after all of these years. And you can imagine 430 years, all of those generations, people probably don't have a solid understanding of who the Lord is. Many of them have been surrounded by Egyptian gods and have let go of those promises. So who is this God? Who are you? I'm the one who just brought you out from the Egyptians. I would spare no expense. There is nothing that could separate me from you. Nothing could stand in my way. That's the kind of God I am. I bore you on eagles, eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Who am I? Chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it's only after that that he says the Ten Commandments, right? Are you familiar with this? Exodus 20, God gives these 10 commands that sort of summarize the way we're called to live in God's world as his people. But he doesn't give us commands in order that we could be his children. He doesn't give us commands in order that we could be in relationship with him. What does it say? He has already created a relationship with us. He's already brought us to himself. This is what he's saying to Israel. This is the pattern of his redemption and of his covenant. Grace precedes our obedience and it motivates it. I think of today and I go back and I think of myself underneath a bed hiding from my parents and, and now I'm a dad. And so when my kiddos act up, 
you know, like every kiddo does, and like I still do, I try to have conversations with them. And I, and I try to have a conversation like this. Dear one, I love you. I love you. Just recently, having a conversation with a child in our basement on the couch, I love you. And nothing you ever do could ever change that. Nothing. I'll say their name. You are. And that will never change. You're my child. But because you're my child, there's a way that I want to see you live so that you could thrive. And so I want to see more of that. Usually something like, yes, Daddy, I understand. So... What does this mean for us in our relationship with God? If this is the way God is with us, I'm your father. I have redeemed you. He sent forth his son at the fullness of time to redeem those who are under the law. To fulfill the righteousness of God for us. Matthew 5, 17. Christ came to fulfill every iota, every dot for us because God knows we can't. This means that we get to work from a place of rest. Jesus says, what is his invitation? One of the most marvelous invitations in all of scripture, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest, to quit trying to earn God's favor. We don't have to make a list of things to do to get God's favor. And I, and I want you to hear this. Christians, people who call your, yourselves Christians, many of you still relate to God. I can do it myself sometimes. We relate to God as though we have to earn back his love. We have this orphan mentality, particularly when we sin. When we sin. And I don't know about you, but I sinned this week. And when we sin, sometimes we can have a feeling that we can't go to God. Like we need to create some distance, give God some space, right? Or we need to maybe go and memorize extra scriptures, read 10 chapters of scripture a day, you know, be nice to our brothers and sisters, whatever it is. Be honest about, you know, how we stole the the candy out of their lunch, whatever it is. We're actually going to try to obey God for a little bit, and then maybe he'll have us back. Here's the good news. (laughs) We begin from a place of rest. The Lord will not take away your name. He came to redeem you. There is no iffiness in our relationship with God. We begin with relational security. But to treat Exodus 19.5 fairly, we need to take into account what it is saying. So what about that if? What happens if we obey? Exodus 19.5, beginning from a place of relational assurance. Let's not begin by hearing it wrongly again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you obey me, if you keep my covenant... You're going to experience blessing. You're going to experience what it is to be mine. The Lord enumerates the blessings of obedience in Leviticus 26. 
he also will enumerate the, the difficulties and the curse of disobedience. But first of all, for, for, for obedience, there is blessing, temporal blessing. The Lord says, I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. We forget that when we sin, we, we do something to ourselves. It's kind of like uh, the old saying that it's a face only a mother could love, right? Well, when we sin, all of us, we're, we're one that only a father abounding in infinite grace could possibly love. And it's a wonder that he does. He doesn't abhor us. He makes his dwelling with us. And he says, and I'll walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. When we're walking with the Lord, there's, there's three things that I want you to see here. First of all, just the, the felt assurance of being treasured by God. This is just something that you have as a blessing as you obey, that just abounds. You're still his when you disobey, but as you walk further and further down that road, I, I warn you, we don't have grounds for that assurance if we walk and practice sin in that way. If we don't feel conviction for it, that should concern us. But when we obey, we have this special opportunity to feel God's pleasure upon us. Secondly, he says, I have broken the bars of your yoke. I have broken. This is something I have done. You see that? Leviticus 26, 13. I have broken the bars of your yoke. What does this mean? That means that we are free to follow God. The people of God in Israel were, were literally slaves. They were literally under oppression. They had to make a quota of bricks with a scarcity of resources, often intentionally scarce, so that they could fail and he could punish them worse. It was terrible oppression. And even more is the oppression of sin that Jesus came to redeem us from. This is what, if you read Romans 6, if we read in Galatians, there is a freedom that Christ came to set us free from sin. The curse of the law is against sinners, and Jesus came to free us from it, to free us from the yoke that would only allow us to sin. Do you realize this? Uh, the church father, Augustine, said it this way, apart from Christ, you are not able to not sin. You hear that? You are not able to not sin. It's the only thing you got going, apart from Christ. Sin. Even our best works tainted by sin. But in Christ, when we obey, we're freed. We're freed to follow God. It's an amazing thing. But there's something that I, I want to, to warn us about. This is only possible in Christ. This freedom comes in Christ. It comes through faith in him. Even our good works, our tiny little crayon drawing offerings that we give to our Father, they're imperfect. But sometimes we, we turn this around and we do our good works apart from Christ, Christians included. But I want you to realize all the things that we do, they are not impressive to God. Like if, if we, imagine we go back to that moment where we've sinned and we think I'll spend a week and I'm gonna memorize, you know, 
whatever it may be. I'm going to memorize Ephesians. I'm just going to spend all day reading my Bible. And I'm going to only do good things every day to the best of my ability. Let's just imagine we tried to do that. And imagine you do memorize Ephesians. And imagine you do a lot of really good things. And you're a really nice person. Is God like, whoa, holy smokes, look at that person. Wow. By golly. God is holiness itself. <laughs> Righteousness is his idea. He's not impressed when we bring our righteousness, righteousness to him as though it's something that should justify us. God, you should accept me because I'm just so righteous. Can't you see? I'm so impressive. Isaiah 64 says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. Tim Keller, a pastor, would often say that the religious only repent of sin, the irreligious don't repent at all, but Christians repent of their wrongfully placed righteousness. Church, friends who call yourself Christian, I would just invite you today to consider, do you need to repent of your wrongfully placed righteousness? Do you live in your home, among your friends, in your workplace, as though it's what you do that makes you acceptable to God? Do you live with God as though your righteousness makes you acceptable with him? Apart from Christ, your righteousness is nothing and worse than nothing. It's only in Christ that our righteousness leads to life beginning from a place of rest, beginning from being saved by his grace, redeemed in his love. So when we obey in Christ, we have this incredible hope. We have a freedom from sin, a motivation because of grace to obey increasingly. A quick aside, many of us are familiar with this theme for freedom, Christ has set us free. The freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom, as Paul speaks of it, freedom from sin, freedom from the curse of the law. But whether it was in the 1960s, there was a big movement that emphasized our freedom in political terms. It was called liberation theology. Or whether it's today and you're of a, a particular political bent and you think that that freedom is, is political, that in Christ we have freedom from our governing authorities. That is not what it's saying. It's saying you have a freedom from the curse of the law. You have a freedom to follow and obey God. Okay? And when we obey, there's great blessing in store. But what happens in our relationship with God when we disobey? This is where we get nervous and that orphan mentality comes back and we read that word if again and it starts to feel like, oh man, we, bought, we probably should just give up. We should pack our bags and go away because God won't accept us. He won't let us come home. But then we find that the Lord has made every provision for us. There's actually something that we could learn from, from the orphan in this mentality. They don't expect anything from God, anything good apart from Christ when they disobey. They expect to be cast out. 
They feel that they deserve that. Many of us have an increasingly Western cultural mentality of entitlement with God. And I'm not just talking about other than Christian neighbors. I'm talking about us too. God should give us what we want, even if we mess up. Big deal, God. Come on, get over it, God. You know, we're talking about me. Kind of a big deal. And we feel like God should just let us off the hook, let us go. When we disobey, what's the big deal? But our neighbor, who before God feels that they've done something wrong, and they wonder, how could he ever accept me again? They have something to teach us. <laughs> because that's the fundamental question that we should ask. How on earth, God, could you love me still? And so today, if, if, if you feel that sense of God should give me something, even if I'm wrong, I just invite you to continue to look to Jesus with that feeling. But if you feel the prick of conscience and that thing called guilt, realize that it's a friend. It's not an enemy. It's God calling you home. When we disobey, temporally we may reap what we sow. There may be terrible disaster that comes upon us if we sin. There are punishments for disobedience enumerated in Leviticus 27, or pardon me, 26, verses 14 and following. They go from the land being barren and not bearing fruit all the way down to folks being killed. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. The blessings of obedience are great. The difficulties and curse of disobedience are terrible. But in Christ, there's an unshakable hope. Some of us have known a loved one who is a Christian who perhaps died. I pause to think about this because this is a reality. Sometimes sin in our choices can lead to the most grievous of consequences, even of death. Whether it be a death by drunk driving, whether it be a self-inflicted death through suicide. Some of us have known friends and neighbors who are in Christ who have been there. And some of us have heard preaching that would say there's no hope for those people because they died in a, in a sinful way. And I just want to tell you, that's nonsense. The Lord's grace is stronger than all of our sin and covers all of our sinful moments. And you don't know any more than I know what the Lord has for any individual heart, but we know his promises. We know that it's by grace that we're saved. We know that the Lord has promised this to us. In John 6, 37, all who come to me, I will never cast out. All who come to me, I will never, never, never cast them out, Jesus says. But, but we, we wrestle with this in our hearts, this idea that the Lord would never let go of us. We think we've, we've messed up so bad. There's a conversation between a sinner and Jesus that Dane Ortland uh, writes out in Gentle and Lowly as he's thinking about Jesus' invitation and his promise that he would never cast his own out. 
The sinner says, no, wait, you don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways, Jesus. I know, Jesus responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all, Jesus says. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. You're the only kind of person I've come to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus would spare nothing to chase you down. He would never cast you out, dear one. For all of the terrible things we may bring upon ourselves in our sin, he has paid the ultimate consequence. We realize even as we read the law, the Lord knew that his people were sinners, and so he made provision. What's the very next book after Exodus? It's Leviticus. It's a bloody book. Why? Because for a sinful people to be safe in the presence of an infinitely holy God, there had to be a payment. There had to be a way for an unclean people to be clean, for an unrighteous people to be made righteous. And so he gave them these pictures, these sacramental pictures and these sacrifices that were ultimately pointing forward to Jesus Christ, our Savior, our great high priest, who's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, who went to the cross for us, became the final sacrifice for us. And now as our high priest, Hebrews 7.25, incredible promise, he lives to intercede for us. That's his life at the right hand of the Father, to plea all that he did on our behalf so that we could be safe with God, even when we disobey. And this is the way our God is. We don't have an iffy relationship with God. And that's the good news of the Christian life. In this story of hope, God graciously brings us to himself. He calls us sons and daughters. He shapes us to be more like him and mold, molds ourselves to be like him. When we stray, he calls us home. But why should I want God's approval at all, some of us would say? Why should we want God? We might say, I don't approve of him. He doesn't give me what I want. Uh, we, we, we may feel this. God doesn't agree with me. I need God to agree with me. God's people were like this. They would want God to satisfy their desires not only for their needs, but also their, their immediate wants at all times. So in, in the book of Numbers, there's a moment, it's kind of comical in Numbers 11, and God's people, they're reminiscing on their time back in Egypt, that, that, that wonderful time when they were slaves, when they were under oppression, and they're reminiscing about it. And they're thinking of all the meat that they used to have, all that steak 
all that salty goodness. And God, why, why don't you give us a little bit of steak? And they complained to God. I could imagine us having a conversation with God in which we said, God, I, I, you don't give me what I want. And he would say, that's right. I don't just give you what, I, what you want. I'm not who you want me to be. I am who I am. And yet, who is he? He is the God who did not spare his own son to make us sinners his own, to transform us into a picture of himself, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's a, what's a priest? It's someone who represents God to people. And we together have an opportunity to do that as we look to God and trust him. Because Christ fulfilled the law for us. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And the thing is, he is desirable. This is the thing that we miss and that our neighbors so often miss. It's not just that God gives us desirable things like steak. And steak is good. It's really good. You know it best if, if, if you have to eat that stuff. What is it called? The impossible meat? You know? What's really impossible is that it could be as good as steak. But that's beside the point. The Lord would satisfy our hearts not with stuff, but with himself. And he himself gave himself to his people. He brought his people to himself that they could be his people and he could be their God. And so I just challenge you and I leave you with this, Faith Church and friends, if you feel that God doesn't give you what you want, if you would just consider that your desires may not be too strong but too weak, as C.S. Lewis wrote, that we can be like children who are making mud pies when a holiday is offered to them at the sea. The Lord is offering you himself in all of his goodness and glory and he is good. Taste and see that he's good. His law is good. It causes us to walk erect as he meant for human beings to be. We can recover our created purpose in him. That's what's on offer here. And our relationship isn't iffy with him. He has fulfilled all of our duties in Christ. And he's covered all of our failings in him as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you would in invite us to be a part of your plan. Thank you that you would offer us, and not only offer, but accomplish our freedom from sin, from the curse of the law that we deserve. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for every blessing we experience in your presence as we follow you. Lord, we do confess that we're sinners. We as a church together and we as individuals are sinners. We have sinned publicly. We have sinned privately. Lord, we have sinned unintentionally and we have sinned willfully. Have mercy on us, Lord. And thank you that you are a God of mercy who chases down sinners. You came not to call the righteous, but sinners just like us. We praise you for this gospel and this hope. Amen.